Okay, we are in the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading again from Ruth, chapter 3, verse 1, although we covered through about verse 5 last time. But let me start reading from chapter 3, verse 1. Ruth 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the, barley at the, at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and he bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown, mercy, you have shown your last kindness to be better than your first, but not by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night when morning comes. If he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So, in this passage, we talked about last time how this was, this was actually a plan that was thought up by Naomi and not by Ruth. And Naomi was doing it for the security of Ruth. This was the security that, that she had sought, actually, for, for Ruth. And... And in this, it says that, that uh, uh, Ruth did exactly what Naomi had suggested. So let me put this in the context. What does this mean to go down and uncover his feet? This was an act that was done to portray that Ruth was saying, fulfill your obligation to marry me, to raise up a seed through me. And... You know, we look at this, you know, this is pretty presumptuous, but actually this is, this is really put forth in the Scriptures. We see other incidences of this. For example, Judah, who was one of the, the children of, of, remember you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then there was, was Jacob had 12 sons that were the names then of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was Judah. Judah had two sons, and... And uh, uh, the first son was married to a woman named Tamar. Tamar, um, actually, Judah had three sons. The first son was married to a woman named Tamar. The first son died, 
because it says that, that uh, uh, he was an evil man, God killed him. And so Tamar was then given to the second son, so that the second son was then to raise up a seed uh, uh, for, in, in the name of the first son. And the second son, it says, it says quite vividly in the book of Genesis, it says that he went into her, but he withdrew, and he emptied his seed upon the ground. And God was so upset by that, by his not fulfilling this role, by his going ahead and having sex with this woman, but not fulfilling his role, it says that God killed him. So God killed two sons of Judah. And then Judah said, you know, Judah said, wait for my third son to get older. Well, it turned out he got older and Judah, it says, was afraid to give the third son because he lost two sons with this woman. He didn't know what would happen. And that's what it says. And it says that, that because he didn't do that, Ashley uh, Tamar deceived him, acted as if she was a prostitute, dressed like a prostitute, after Judah's first wife had died. And it says that Judah himself had ended up sleeping with Tamar. God raised up twins from this incestual-like relationship. God was so intent in seeing the word carried out. And this was in the book of Genesis prior to the law of Moses. Remember, the law of Moses defined this sort of thing in Deuteronomy 25 and in Leviticus 25 concerning the land and concerning the individual. This was a very powerful thing to do in that day and that generation. One of the ways that the woman could go and tell the man, you need to fulfill this role. Let me put it in context, in our present day context, what it would be like. Shireen, my wife, would be very justified if I said, you know, I don't feel like working anymore. I think I'll just stay home and watch TV. She would be most justified, and I think you would all agree, for her to stand up, put her hands on her hips, and to say, look, you are going to go out and work and bring home some money for this family. Wouldn't you say that she's justified in doing that? Yes, so that is a justification that we can understand. It is not wrong of her to do that and to expect that. In the same way, when a woman's husband died, she could expect someone to fulfill the role. Now, the law was very specific. It was to be fulfilled by a brother. There were no more brothers because, remember, Naomi's two sons died. But Naomi's impression was that Boaz was the nearest kinsman and so that he could go ahead and fulfill this role. But actually, Boaz was Naomi's age. Boaz was not Ruth's age. Ruth, Ruth was a generation below. But what, what Naomi was doing was saying, no, I will yield to this. You go ahead and have it fulfilled with Ruth and have a child raised up because the chances of this older woman, Naomi, being able to have a child, as we read about earlier, is very small. She says, even if God should somehow work through me to have a child. So she wanted it to go through Ruth. And Ruth was willing to accept this. One of the ways of accepting it in that generation was to go and uncover the man's feet. And that was an indication of saying, you are going to go and fulfill your role. Just like if I just say, you know, I'm not going to go to work anymore. I'm just going to sleep in. 
Shireen would be very justified in just yanking the covers off of me in the morning and saying, go out there and start taking care of your family. And we understand that she would be justified in doing that. That is something that she's justified in doing in this culture in this day. And in fact, not only she would be justified in approaching me, my friends would be justified in approaching me. The church, the leadership in the church would be justified in approaching me saying, you better fulfill your fatherly role and your fatherly duty. The New Testament says that a, a man is to care for his family. If he doesn't care for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever, the New Testament says. And so I should be held accountable for that. So for a woman to make an appeal to a man to fulfill the role that they're supposed to fulfill is not a wrong thing. In the context of that day, that is the way it was done. So that puts it in context for us. What was Boaz doing lying out by the heaps of grain? This was very normal because during the, the, the time when they were threshing, the person who owned the land with people who worked for him would sleep at different areas around where these piles of grain were to guard it. This is what they would do. They wouldn't just leave it at night and leave it open and exposed. They would actually sleep there. So it was normal for him to have been sleeping there. And it was a time of celebration. This, this, this time where they're, 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 uh, they're at this, this, uh, this threshing floor, that this was a time of celebration. Remember, it had been a long time since they had had this. But look at Boaz's response. So now we understand it, and Ruth fulfilled exactly what Naomi had told her to do. So, so Boaz wakes up in verse 9, and he's startled, and he says, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maid. Now this word maid is no longer... It, you may remember back in, in uh, verse 13 of chapter 2. She says, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. There are two words for maidservant there. She said, I am not even like one of your maidservants. One of your maidservants is worthy to be called as a wife should you want them. I am below that. But now this time she's using that first word, that I am your maidservant. I have learned who you are. You are a close kinsman. She didn't know that earlier on, back in chapter 2 of that part. It wasn't until the end of chapter 2 that, that Naomi shared that with her. She says, I can indeed be your wife. And she's saying, fulfill your role. And there was, no, there was nothing sexual in this, because look what he says. He says in verse 10, she says, cover your maid, for you are a close relative. And he says in verse 10, Then he said to her, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be greater than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Okay, so, if it, if it had been, if he had taken that as some sort of sexual advance, he never would have blessed her in this way. He said, May you be blessed of the Lord. That, Lord, that word Lord is in small capital letters in your Bible. That means he uses the name Jehovah. He used the actual name of God. He says, Blessed are you of Jehovah. When, you're, when people are involved in some illicit sexual act, they don't bring the name of God. They stay very far away from that. Not only that, he calls her his daughter. Again, showing the age difference. She is, he, Ruth is young enough to be his daughter. 
Ruth is, is, is Naomi's daughter-in-law. Boaz is of Ruth's generation. And he says, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Your last act of kindness. Well, what was her first act of kindness? Well, the first one Boaz noted back in, in chapter 2. He said in verse 11, to verse 11, Boaz said to her, All you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and may your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So her first act was to honor her mother-in-law and to leave her family and the gods that her family worshipped and come and start following the Lord of Israel, even though it brought her as a foreigner into the land. That was a good act. We can all see that. He says, now what you're doing is even better. The kindness that you're showing, not to me, but to Naomi. You have chosen not to go after the young men, whether poor or rich. So in other words, she could have had younger men, rich or poor, her choice. And it's, then he says, he says uh, um, in verse 11, he, he talks about how everyone in the city knows you to be a woman of excellence. She had only lived there less than six months. Remember, they came in, she went to glean, there was the barley harvest, the wheat harvest. It's less than six months. They know her to be a woman of excellence. What makes her stand out? What makes it so that she could have married any one of a number of young men, poor or rich, even being a uh, a foreigner? Because she was a woman of excellence. When women choose the high road, when women choose the road of being separated and a higher road, they are looked upon as a woman of excellence and men will be attracted to them. This happens. This happens. And he said to them, this last act of kindness is better because you've had many opportunities. You could have had young men. You don't need to come to me as an older man. You don't need to do this. In doing this, you're honoring the family line and you're providing not just for yourself, you're providing for your mother-in-law, Naomi, because this is going to establish her line. You could be fine, but you've chosen to work through the line of Naomi and through the line of your former husband. You, you were not obligated to do this. And he says, this last act of kindness that you're doing to your mother-in-law is greater than the first act of coming with her. And even neglecting, your, 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 the, uh, neglecting the, the, the gods of, of your own family to come under the wings of the God of Israel. This act of kindness is even greater. She chose the high road. She chose to do this differently. And then even at that moment, he could have said, you know, let's do it. You're here, I'm here. But look what he says. He says in verse 12, Now it is true... I am a close relative. However, there is a closer one than I. Remain this night when morning comes. If he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. And so we'll see later on in this chapter that 
that, that he ends up confronting this guy who is actually a closer relative. There's somebody closer than him. He says, I, I can't, you know, there can be nothing sexual tonight because there's still somebody closer. I have to resolve this in a proper way. This man waited and he says, yes, I can redeem you, but there's really somebody closer. If he redeems you, fine, I back off. If he doesn't redeem you, then we, we will go about it in this way. You are a woman of excellence. He knew her as a woman of excellence, and still he would not do it without doing it in the proper way. This is a good thing. There is a time, and that is after the marriage, that is for uh, a, a sexual union between a man and a woman. And there is a time when it should not take place, and that is before marriage. And young people will say all the time to me, what is it, what's the difference before or after that? It is a huge difference. It's a huge difference in the sight of God. It's a huge difference in the sight of a relationship. They say, well, we're going to get married anyway. It is a huge difference. If, you, if we lo- lower our moral standards before marriage, the standards stay lowered after marriage. This is true. If a man lowers his moral standards with a woman before marriage, what prevents him from all of a sudden, after marriage, now our standards are very high in moral. No, the the standards have been lowered. And so the woman will distrust the man when he gets some young secretary. And the man will distrust the woman in the workplace because the standards were lowered. When you keep God's highest standards, it is good and it is right. This man would not pursue this without going through God's way and God's standards. And in fact, it came so high, he said, you know, I'm willing to not marry you because there's someone who's closer. If he marries you, good, let it be done. It is a good thing to walk in God's standards. And I see it all the time. I have students that mean a lot to me. But I see this all the time. That women will lower their standards because this guy wants to move in with them, wants to move in. And so they lower the standards. The guy moves in. And then the guy year after year goes on. And the women are like, I don't know why he won't ask me to marry him. Well, duh. Why does he want to marry a woman with such low standards? One of the things that drives a man to want to marry a woman is because the woman does not allow that sort of thing, nor should the man be pushing it. I have a, a, a six-part series that I put on the Internet that I spent about 200 hours preparing, which for me is a lot of hours. It's on, called Scriptural Sexual Ethics. And if you haven't listened to it, I think you should. It is particularly good for young people as, as they're thinking about marriage and then also for young couples. And I, I worked on this and, and I think I did it about four years ago. Did, did this, 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 prepared this about four years ago. So it's been up on the internet for a while. And I encourage you to listen to it. It's a, it's a four-part series. And that means you listen to part one first and then part two. And I know that students these days are nonlinear learners and they jump all over. This is made to go in succession. I want to read you a small, small por- portion of this, just a little bit. And it's, and it's good for you to go through this. My own daughter went through this with, with my son-in-law when they were engaged. And my son-in-law you know, called me from Israel, and he, this is before they were married. He says, you know, I really appreciate listening to that. 
you know, and how much it, it, it meant to me. And the reason I do this is because I think that in our society, there's so much sexual disorder. And, and I know this, I know this from myself. And on this series, I expose myself totally. So much so, it's, I mean, it's, it, can, it can be very embarrassing. But I did this because I know that young men in this society, in this generation, struggle with this. And I've had young men come to me and say, wow, you know, after the things you said on there, I am so glad I listened because I see that, you know, everybody has struggles. It's not just me because a lot of times you wonder if the, the struggles are just with me. Let me, let me just read you a, 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 just a small portion from the introduction of that, and then I'm going to skip to another portion. So this is from the introduction of scriptural sexual ethics. It says, I'm not throwing stones. I have loads of my own sin. Whether it's adultery, fornication, or homosexuality, I'm not here to condemn. As far as I can tell, philosophically, it appears there's only one way to have an unforgivable sin. And that is, we refuse to acknowledge that we sin. We are all in need of mercy, and to rationalize sin is to deny our need for mercy. Sex is often the most consuming aspect for young men, and it was and it is for me, and often the most emotionally painful aspect for young women. Marriage in itself does not provide a legitimate sexual outlet for disordered sexual desire. Getting married does not cure sexual disorder. Only redemption can. And, and the first part of this, I just deal with redemption. But let me continue in the introduction. If anyone enters into marriage with deep-seated sexual disorder, he condemns his partner to a terribly unpleasant life of sexual objectification. I'm going to make analogies, but in, in the very terminology, it speaks of similarities and also of some dissimilarities. But the marriage between a man and a woman is the least dissimilar of all analogies that could be made regarding Christ and the church. For God himself uses it according to Ephesians chapter 5. But I acknowledge up front that our relationship and soon coming union with Christ is not a sexual one, not at all. However, God himself used the sexual union of a man with his wife as the most profound analogy to describe Jesus' union with the body of Christ and the church. Now I'm skipping to, to part four, which talks about converting the Christian bread bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And if you think that when you get married, sexual disorder is going to be all cured and solved, you are in for a huge surprise. That is why I'm saying, listen to this on the internet. Because so many young people go into this thinking, after that there will be no more lust, no more trouble, no more desiring other women, no more desiring other men, I'll be all set. Ha, ha, ha. You're in for a big surprise if you don't learn what redemption is. Let me, let me just mention now a section from improper bedroom conduct. We must realize that getting married does not automatically make sex okay. If a husband and a wife are just going through the motions or not being honest about the things that their renewal means, that's their, their, their marriage renewal covenant, or even knowingly opposing what their vows mean, they're not being faithful but unfaithful to those vows. Marriage is not a mar magic wand in making what was sinful before marriage become, become fine after marriage. It is only what is in, it is intended to be if it is renewal of the wedding vows. 
Even spouses can lie with their bodies. Titus 1.16 says they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. So our bodies can speak, but they can speak lies. How can you break the wedding vows of free, total, faithful, and fruitful commitment? All right. So what I talk about in here is in wedding vows, there's the implicitness of it being free. I freely give myself to you. Total. I am totally yours. Faithful. I will be faithful to you and fruitful. I am open to having children. And that is a big thing. Many people will say, let's go to the movies together. Let's go play tennis together. Let's go have sex together. They won't say, let's have a baby together. Why? Because a baby speaks of commitment. A baby speaks that I love you so much, I want more that are like you in children. I want more that look like you, more that act like you. This is a real thing. This is why children are like their parents. I see my wife in my children and I thank God for it. People will not say, let's go have a baby together. Because that speaks of commitment. That's why in the covenant it is there. The fruitfulness of the marriage. We are free. Is there something such as marital rape? Yes. Violating spouse's freedom. But it doesn't even have to go that far. Freedom means that you can decline. If the only reason that you have sex is because you can't control your hormones, then you're not free, but in bondage to them. Because if you cannot say no, then your yes is devoid of meaning. But give your yes freely, not just because you have an itch that needs to be scratched. Men, get your, sexual, your sexuality redeemed, as, as I spoke of earlier. And, and the earlier sections deal with getting our sexuality redeemed. There's a total self-giving, meaning... It speaks of lifelong. How can such a promise be given outside the confines of marriage? Also, if, if, if you're not being emotionally present to your spouse, if, for example, you're planning your activities for the next day during the very act, that is a lack of total self-giving. If you're emotionally distant or holding a grudge throughout the day or week without first seeking and being open to reconciliation, it would be like taking the Lord's Supper without searching oneself. Faithfully or fidelity. What about fantasy? Using their body to commit adultery in the heart at the precise moment of renewing the vows. We need redemption, men. If you're bound by fantasy, don't despair. You can be free in Christ's death and resurrection if you're willing to die with Him and likewise be raised through redemption and fruitfully open to children. I deal with this thing of fidelity faithfully all the time with men. That... uh, uh, you know, and, and I share it with a couple sometimes, and I'll say, do you struggle? I'll look at the man, do you struggle about thinking about another woman when you're having sex with your wife? And the woman will turn and look at the man, and the man won't answer. Because I know where the man is, because I understand men, because I'm one of them. And it's learning to be open to redemption, and it is a painful thing. And I'm talking about couples that are in their 50s and 60s that the wives never even knew the struggles their husbands had because the husbands never went through redemption. So what does this mean then for the unmarried? This is where we are here. Now we understand plainly while having sex before marriage is wrong. You have no wedding vows to renew. You're saying something with your bodies that isn't true. Are you really the others totally for the rest of your life? 
Are you fruitfully open to children? If you say not a word, you speak this with your bodies and therefore break the promise given by your body. The body speaks wedding vows in this intimate act. So am I saying that premarital sex is wrong? Yes, I am. You'd be dishonest with the other person, not seeking their best, because there would be no way to fulfill the free, total, faithful, and fruitful vows. Recall that true Christ-like love is looking out for the other's best, even to the point of being crucified for their best. Even when they lose the dignity of their own body, you show them dignity as being made in the image of God. Men, even if you are with a woman who wants to give herself to you, you show her dignity that she doesn't even understand. You show her dignity. So what is the line for the unmarried, as students often ask me? Let me quote an author here. Any physical behavior that aims to arouse the body in preparation for sexual intercourse, fondling of each other's genitals or breasts, or even some kind of extended kissing or embracing, are not appropriate expressions for the unmarried. When there is no moral possibility of consummate love, it is unloving to arouse someone to the point of physical craving for intercourse or masturbation. The line was crossed a long time before. And I'm not speaking to modify our sexual behavior, but in transforming our hearts from the way the world loves to the way that Christ loves. How many of us can attest to the emptiness, guilt, isolation, and despair that arises following an illicit sexual experience? We search in vain for happiness. Only the most hardened heart can continue to feign solace in that afterglow of such an experience. So what is the line? Love so supersedes lust that when properly oriented through redemption, we discover that the simplest manifestation of affection, whether a look, a touch, or a gentle kiss, is more joyous and more fulfilling than the most intense, illicit sexual encounter. Why? Because it's genuine, it's real, it's honest, it's true to what's appropriate in a given stage of relationship. It's not seeking to get anything. It's seeking to give and to affirm. It is true love, seeking the other's best, and the dignity, and their dignity as one who is made in the image of God. This is what we see in the relationship with Boaz. He would not touch her until he had properly dealt with this issue. That there is one person he knew, even Naomi didn't know this, that is a closer relative than he. He said, I must first bring this up with him. If he chooses to marry you, so be it. But if he chooses not to fulfill this role, I will fulfill this role for you. He said, blessed be you of Jehovah. Blessed be you of the Lord. This act of kindness that you are doing in a proper order, you're doing this perfectly right. He said, you are indeed a woman of excellence. You will stand as a woman of excellence. Now, for those who have not led our lives in the perfectly proper way, I tell you all the more, listen to what I have to say in that series. 
because after the introductory part, I deal, it, deal with redemption of the man, what it means to be a true man, and the redemption of the man. Then what it means to be a woman, and the redemption of the woman. Then I go into this conversion of the Christian bedroom, and then finally, that marriage is not a sham. Lowering the divorce rate from 50% to less than 1%. There is a group of people that has less than 1% divorce rate. Less than 1%. And it is, you know, it, 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 it extends beyond those who are Christians. It extends beyond those who wake up in the morning and have their quiet times. It is a group, it, it, it is couples that carry out one specific pattern in their marriage, regardless of what their faith is, and they have less than 1% divorce rate. I want you to listen to this series and listen in the order in which it was given. And I am so delighted that my daughter and her husband listened to this and have decided to walk in that practice of that group of people that have less than 1% divorce rate. And I know that because shortly after they listened to it, we received all these books in the mail that my daughter had, had ordered that revolve around this sort of thing because it's much cheaper for her to just order books on Amazon because I pay $75 a year and we get free shipping. And they come to me and then I have to put them in a box and mail them for her, to her for like $75 per package that I mail to her. But it doesn't cost her a thing that way. <laughs> so that's just, that's just the way kids are and that's just the way, the, the way dads are supposed to be when their wives tell them, no, you will continue to do that. It's okay. <laughs> so that's what we do. Anyway, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of it. Lord, thank you for the demonstration of a proper sexual relationship between Boaz and Ruth. And I pray, Lord, for these young people that you would so get hold of their hearts to cause them to guard their lives and move it into a proper sexual order so that they can save themselves from the devastation and the pain that can come from going about this in a wrong way. Father, I pray that you would redeem the young ladies here, redeem the young men here. Father, that their lives from this moment on would be different because of your word. Father, I pray that you do this. And Lord, I ask you for your blessings. In the name of Jesus. Amen.